the blessings and the curses that I have set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered, has scattered you. Even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your ancestors possessed, and you will possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, in order that you may live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on the adversaries who took advantage of you. Then you shall again obey the Lord, observing all his commandments, and I am commanding you today, that I am commanding you today, and the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all your undertakings, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your soil. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, just as he delighted in prospering your ancestors, when you obey the Lord your God by observing his commandments and decrees that are written in this book of the law, because you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it in your heart for you to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The second reading is from Romans chapter eight, and that's on page 918. And starting at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. No condemnation. Sounds all right, doesn't it? Does that sound pretty good? Yep. Uh, It sounds a lot to me like the kind of classic rule of the inner west law that uh, Andrew spoke about a few weeks back. No condemnation, tolerance, no judgment. Everything and everyone is okay, except for judgment and judgmental people, of course. But we know, we've seen as we've dug into Romans 7 in the last few weeks, that what sin produces when it gets its hooks into us, what it does even with a holy, just and good commandment, as well as any other good laws that are around, it twists what's good and turns it bad. So that the tolerance and the tolerant become judgment and judgmental. We see it in others, we know it in ourselves. And so we preach tolerance, and yet we're always deeply afraid of being condemned. No condemnation sounds like it could be kind of the inner west creed. It sounds like exactly what our culture longs for, even perhaps what our culture boasts in and prides itself on. But we know that it doesn't work, that it isn't really true. So how is it that we can have an actually condemnation-free life? A life in which no condemnation is the rule, a life free from judging others and free from the fear of being judged by others. How to have that kind of no condemnation life is what we're going to tackle as we unpack this first little section of Romans 8 this evening. We're going to do it in three points, uh, which you can see on the slide in front of you. Uh, Firstly, we're going to see what it is that in this passage is condemned because we're going to see God is someone who does condemn. What is it that he condemns? Secondly, we're going to see how it is that he condemns. And finally, and very importantly, uh, what it is that is not condemned. What's condemned? How is it condemned? Uh, What is not condemned? We're going to jump straight in to that first point. Uh, Paul's been unpacking the deep problem of sin uh, and showing us where sin is located. Uh, Here in chapter 8, he picks up the argument that he's been making uh, all the way through, actually, from chapter 5 that we worked through last year. Uh, Sin came into the world through Adam, leading to condemnation and death for all. Sin and death spread through the world, ruling over it, enslaving people who live in this world. And so even the holy, just, and good law of God has been twisted by sin's power and presence. Sin gets its hooks into us, gets its claws into our flesh. But, we read again and again and again throughout Romans, if you've died to sin and been raised to new life with Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the law. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And all of this, again and again and again, is pure gift, pure grace. In chapter 6, Paul writes, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's been going over old ground, in a sense, from chapter 5 through to chapter 6 and 7, where he really, really locates that problem of sin in us, in our hearts, in human beings, in a way that means that we can't get it out ourselves. But that same dynamic is true that he's been speaking of all along. That's not you anymore if you're in Christ Jesus. 
And so now Paul can proclaim in one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there's no condemnation at all. Uh, God isn't, it turns out, an inner Westie just like us in our image, refusing to pass judgment on anything ever. No, God is someone who condemns, but it's so important to see what it is that he condemns. This makes all the difference to our understanding of who our God is and to what it means to follow him as one of his children. It's clearly stated in verse 3. Verse 3 is this long, complicated verse. It's full of deep riches. We're going to unpack it in a little bit more detail uh, in our, our second point in just a moment. But the spine of that verse makes this question very clear. What does God condemn? God condemned sin. God is indeed a God who condemns, but his condemnation has a very specific target. It's worth taking a moment to ask, why is it here? Why is this what God condemns? He could condemn whatever he wanted, I guess. And yet sin, very clearly, is his target. Well, Romans has laid out for us what sin is over the course of the letter. In chapter 1, we read that sin is a turning away from God, looking to something other than God as the source of life and blessing, desiring something more than the glory of God. It results, we read, in confused thinking in hearts that have become dark. Sin makes what is good appear evil and what is evil appear good. As the letter continues, we see that sin is more than just kind of evil dispositions or thoughts or even actions. Sin, with a capital S if you like, sin is more than just a collection of sins, plural. It's also a force that is at work in the world, that's been unleashed in creation through Adam and all who are born into him. And it's spread through the world, enslaving human beings as it goes, overpowering them, becoming the thing that rules in their lives and in the world. And it brings death. Chapter 5, we read, Sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. We'll see as we journey through chapter 8 over the next few weeks that just as sin has spread throughout the whole human race, so also sin has spread to the creation itself. So the whole of creation finds itself in a state of decay. Uh, One of the Bible storybooks that uh, my uh, nearly three-year-old Maggie has uh, puts it like this. It's kind of cute, but also actually really, really deep, even quite confronting when you think about it. Uh, This particular Bible storybook that she has says, Sin spoils things. Uh, Now when it says that, it's not talking about spoiling something in a kind of lame sense of missing out on a trip to the zoo. I love the zoo, really disappointing to miss a trip to the zoo, spoiled, but not like this. It's more like what we mean when we talk about fruit spoiling. It goes bad. It decays. This is what sin does to everything, to uh, the whole of the creation, to our bodies, to our relationships, to our sense of meaning and purpose, even to our own sense of who we are. Sin spoils the world and spoils our hearts. But God in his grace and love and mercy is determined not to let sin spoil his creation forever. He won't let it have the last word on what he's made. He wants his whole creation and us with it to have life. And so he sets his sights on the real problem, the real enemy, the force that brings decay and death into his good creation. He targets sin and condemns it. 
The idea of a God who condemns is uncomfortable for many of us. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that too much tonight. I think we all know that it's true. It's uncomfortable for many in our culture, uncomfortable for us, I think, too, often, even if we've been Christians for a while. Uh, at the heart of it, I think it's uncomfortable because it turns out God doesn't always agree with us about what we should condemn. Sometimes there are things that God says, no, actually, that's sin that comes out of a heart that's been twisted from, away from good toward evil. We go, really? Really? Is it? Yes, God says sometimes. We're uncomfortable sometimes with a God who condemns. But even if we don't always understand why some things are sinful, why some things deserve condemnation, the fact that God is a God who condemns is, of course, good news for us and for our world. Because there's plenty in our world that's worth condemning. Now, just in the last couple of weeks, a story has come out about a man, some of you will know who I'm talking about, uh, who uh, founded this uh, beautiful community, Christian community, around uh, uh, caring for the disabled and seeing them as fully human members of society, caring for them as equals in the Lord Jesus. It's just come out in the last few weeks that he was found of uh, many, many, found guilty of many, many years of sexual misconduct amongst people who he worked with. Not amongst the disabled he worked with, but with other carers. There's plenty in our world that's worth condemning. But God is righteous. He's a God of justice. That, in part, is what the whole story that's told in the letter to the Romans is about. God is a God of justice, and he won't let evil and sin like this spoil his world forever. He loves this world that he's made too much. He loves the people he's made. And so, of course, he must condemn sin. And the truth of the matter is, he wouldn't be worth our worship if he didn't. What is it that is condemned? Sin. And that's a good, good thing. That raises the question for us, the second point we're going to speak about tonight. How is it that sin is condemned? God does what needs to be done. He condemns sin. How does he actually get the job done? What's his solution to the problem? Now, this question, of course, gets right to the very heart of the gospel. And to answer it, we need to unpack what Paul writes in verse 3. As I mentioned, it's quite a complicated little verse. There's lots of punctuation in it. That's how you know that something's complicated, right? There's commas everywhere. There's even a colon. So, you know, things are getting serious. Let me read for you 8 verse 3, and then we're going to unpack it step by step. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, this verse is uh, kind of like a deep, vast ocean, if you like. There are depths to be plumbed here that many, many books have been written about. Uh, it's probably, I think, uh, Paul's richest and most compact statement of what it is that God is all about, what he's been doing in Jesus all along, the whole point and purpose of everything that he's achieved through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's worth unpacking it carefully one phrase at a time. First, we read that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Uh, he's reminding us at this point of what we heard in Romans chapter 7. The law is a good thing, given by God to bring life to his people. And that's precisely what it couldn't do. It couldn't bring life. In fact, it brought death because sin took it and twisted it. The flesh got in the way, sin with its hooks in us. The law couldn't do what it set out to do. Secondly, God condemned sin in the flesh. 
we've been listening to Paul over the last few weeks draw this kind of um, spiritual map, if you like, which he's been locating us and locating the problem that we have in the world. Sin, he says, is the problem, not anything else, not the law, not being a, an Israelite, not being a Gentile, any of those things. Sin is the problem. And it brings death and it gets into us. It dwells in human hearts. It twists and changes us and makes human beings its slaves. That's the problem. And he described that problem as flesh. That idea of sin in us, controlling us. He condemned sin, we read, in the flesh. What that's telling us is that God knows exactly where the problem is and he knows exactly what to do to fix it. And the solution needs to be applied directly to where the wound is. In the flesh. That's the only way to deal with the problem. And God does this, we read, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, this is perhaps the most uh, complicated and careful and important phrase in the whole verse, actually. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, to understand what that means, it's uh, useful to actually uh, see what it doesn't say. Uh, this verse doesn't say, in the likeness of flesh which might imply that Jesus was only kind of human, that he was kind of like flesh, that he had a body perhaps that looked a bit like ours but wasn't really like ours, that he was like us but not quite the same as us. But of course, for the solution to be appropriate to the problem, it must deal with the actual issue, not in the likeness of flesh but in the likeness of sinful flesh. Actually, in flesh, Jesus takes on true humanity in all its weakness experiencing all the brokenness of a world in which sin has power. But notice it doesn't say sending his own son in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's not like flesh, he's actual flesh, but he's not sinful flesh. In sinful flesh might imply that Jesus shared our sin, real human flesh, and with all the issues that we have, with a bent, twisted heart, that gets sin in it and stuck in it and it flows out in his actions in the world. But of course, that's the very thing that qualifies Jesus for the task of dealing with sin. He's got flesh like us. He has a body like us. Christianity, the Bible, has no problem with bodies. Bodies aren't the problem. Jesus is fully human in every way except without sin. And so to make that clear, what Paul writes is, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Real humanity, real flesh and blood, subject to pain and sorrow and sickness and death and even to temptation, but not sinful. Jesus was always a victim of sin, but never its agent, affected by sin, living in our broken world, but never doing sin. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Paul underscores that God has done this to deal with sin. He's saying the problem is resolved. The solution is exactly what we need to deal with the problem that we all face. And the language that Paul uses here actually recalls the sin offering of the Old Testament, the sacrifice of atonement that was made to pay the wages of sin. Because Jesus took on real humanity but didn't sin, he could be that sin offering. And so God's own son pays the wages of sin with his own death. Now let me give you an analogy for what's happening here. Uh, you might have questions you want to ask me about all that later. It's, a, it's deep and complicated and beautiful and rich. Uh, but let me give you a little analogy uh, and see if this uh, can help us out a little bit. Um, you might remember this, actually. I've used this one before. 
So if you've been listening closely, you might recognize it. I used it actually when we were working through Romans chapter 5 last year because Paul's talking about the same stuff again. He kind of heightens the drama in uh, chapters 6 and 7. He gets more specific about exactly what the problem is and the nature of it. And then he comes back around to the same point that he's been making all along about how it is that God deals with sin in Jesus. So here's my little analogy. Uh, Think of an oil spill. You've actually had two goes at this if you've been at the attic over the last few years. I tried it out at the attic. So there you go. Thank you, youth group, for bearing with me as I tease this out. An oil spill, right? How do you clean up oil once it's in the water and it begins to spread and to overwhelm the environment that it's part of and the creatures uh, around it? Uh, Oil gets into everything. It means that birds that live in water like this one can't get water out of their feathers anymore. They, They can't be in water in the way that they're supposed to be. It mucks up fish's eating habits. It kills plants that live in the ocean. It gets into everything. How do you clean it up? Well, the conventional way to deal with the issue is to use uh, sponges and skimmers and scoops and even vacuums to gather all of the oil up into one place. And then you set it on fire and burn it all up. Sin is kind of like an oil spill, right? It's this sickly substance and power and force that spoils everything around it. And it's spread out into the world from Adam through all of humanity, infecting all of creation with decay and death. What God has done is this. In order to condemn sin, he's heightened the problem of sin in his people Israel by the law, making it really clear what the issue actually is. And then as the representative of God's people Israel in Jesus, he's concentrated sin even further so that all the weight of sin comes down in one place. That all the weight of everything that stands opposed to the life God wants for his creation comes down in one place, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. And there, with sin congealed, with all its power bearing down in his flesh, God sets it alight. God kills sin dead once and for all, breaking its power. There, in that place, on the cross, God deals with sin But that isn't the end of the matter. God condemned sin not as an end in itself, but with another goal and purpose in mind. His goal and purpose, as in all of creation, has been to give life. To give the life, indeed, that the law promised but could never achieve, because sin twisted it, just like it twists everything. God's goal and purpose is laid out in verse 4. So that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those first two words in verse 4 there are deeply important. So that. You see, this is the purpose of everything that God's been doing in the whole of creation, in the giving of the law, in the calling of his own people Israel, in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This has been the aim all along that the humanity he creates, uh, created and loved would have the life that he so longs for it to have, the life he's always destined us for. And because sin has been condemned, and because, as we're going to see in just a moment, we're not condemned along with it. Because sin's been condemned, we now have that life by the Spirit. Spiritual life, even here and now, free no longer to do sin's bidding, but instead to fight against it. And resurrection life, when our Lord comes again in power. 
That's the purpose of all of this. To give the life that God has always wanted for his world and for his people. And it's the spiritual power that comes along with that, made possible by God's condemnation of sin in the flesh of Jesus and by his putting his spirit in our hearts where sin used to be. That's what the rest of Romans 8 is all about. Where have we come so far? Now, what does God condemn? He condemns sin. And how does he condemn it? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. A perfect solution that meets the problem exactly where it needed to be met. What does all that mean for you and me? Well, we come around again to the first verse, that famous verse at the start of this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit uh, because it turns out it's not as straightforward sometimes as it seems like it should be. And you see what God has managed to do here? You see what God has managed to do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh? He's made a way to condemn sin without condemning sinners. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, for all those who've thrown themselves in with him, who've entrusted themselves to him, who said to him, I need you to do what I so desperately need but can't do myself. I need rescue. I need to be redeemed and restored. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. If you trust Jesus, you are what's not condemned. Uh, sisters and brothers, many of you know this verse very well. You've heard it many, many times. As I said, it's a famous, famous verse. You've heard it preached about. You've heard it in our liturgy in various places. You've written it probably on a pencil case at school or something if you're a Christian during school. The question, though, is do you actually believe that this is true for you and about you? Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh pastor who served at a church in London in the 20th century, uh, made this deeply insightful, deeply disturbing, in one sense, observation when he was preaching on this verse. Uh, he said, most of our troubles, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse. Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse. Uh, just think about that for a moment. Uh, why is it that you're so bad at taking criticism? Uh, why is it that you find it so hard, impossible even, to really open yourself up to other people? Uh, why is it that you can be a little bit prickly sometimes? Why is it that your parents' disappointment gets to you so much? Why is it that a bad mark, a bad result in an assessment, seems like the end of the world? Why can't you stand it when you have a friend who disagrees with you about something that matters to you? In the background of all these things, all these struggles that you and I and everyone else face, all these things in our hearts and our lives that diminish our relationships with others in all kinds of ways that make us feel less good about ourselves, in the background of all of these things is that little voice that says, if you really open up, they won't like you, they won't like what they see, you'll be condemned. If you get it wrong, if you don't get the result that you're after, you're a failure, you'll be condemned. Condemnation, our fear of condemnation, perhaps most especially our own self-condemnation, 
lies underneath so much of what goes on for us in our lives. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Never. Not for things past, not for things happening right now, not for anything you might do in the future. What's being said here isn't just that you can be free from condemnation, that it's one of the options for you now, that you can kind of go, oh, I just kind of repented of my sins and now I'm not condemned. Oh, I sinned again, now I'm condemned again, now I've got to repent again. It's not this in and out, up and down kind of thing. No, there's no condemnation. There's no possibility, even as you continue to wrestle with sin, that you can ever come under God's condemnation again. Why? Because sin has been condemned. The wage has been paid. Jesus has paid it in his own flesh once and for all. A couple of years ago, I got to hear um, a famous preacher reflecting uh, on something that had happened to him just a couple of years before. Uh, He's not that famous, really. He's a minister in a church in Sydney, and three or four of you would know who he was if I told you who he was. Uh, But he's been in Christian ministry for um, for 30 years and a Christian for maybe 40 years. He said that he had this experience where he was preaching about the cross of Jesus for like the thousandth time, right? And for the first time, after so many decades of being a Christian, for the first time after so many decades of ministry, of preaching the good news of the gospel, he said, I realised in a way I never had before, that because of what God has done in Jesus, then whatever I might feel about myself, whatever else God might have to say about my life, he's not angry with me. Do you know that? Can you say that about yourself? Have you taken that truth to heart? If you belong to Jesus, then God is not angry with you. He doesn't think that you're kind of just a little bit gross or a little bit annoying and he just kind of wants to hold you off to one side. All of that's done. There is no condemnation. It's dealt with and God is all love and grace toward you. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, this is your spiritual reality now. Every one of you, without exception, I don't care how messed up you are. This is your spiritual reality. Uh, Paul underlines this really clearly and beautifully in verse 2. In verse 2 he writes, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh, Notice the pronoun in that sentence. You. Uh, Paul so often uh, says in his writes in his letters, uh, you don't see this as well in our English translations because we don't have different a different you for singular and plural, right? Paul so often is speaking in communal terms. But here, after all of the I language of uh, chapter 7, of the we and us language of so much of the letter, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he uses the second person singular. You, he says. Each one of you. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. You are no longer condemned. He's saying this is the banner that stands over your life. This is the headline of your story. No condemnation. So it's worth just asking the question and reflecting perhaps over the next week. Um, What would change about you? What would change if you really, really knew this? If you really believed this in the depth of your heart? If you really believed that you were not condemned? How would your relationships change? How would your ability to cope with difficult circumstances change? How would you respond differently when you're mistreated? How would you feel about your own stuff-ups and failings? Uh, Here's just two things that I think would really change uh, if you really 
get the truth of no condemnation into your heart. They may or may not be things that I'm working on personally. I don't know. Could be. Now, the first thing I think is that your prayers will be more raw and more urgent. Now, if you don't really believe no condemnation, then you'll never come to God unless you feel like you have it all together, like you're ready and presentable to speak to him. You'll avoid prayer, perhaps, and perhaps especially at the moments when you most need to pray, when you're most aware of your fears and failings, when you've got that voice in your head saying, you're done for, you're worthless, you're hopeless, it's over. But if you can say in your heart in those moments, no condemnation, then you'll be able to bring those burdens to your father openly and honestly. Uh, Similarly, in a different relational sphere, uh, if you really get this in your heart, you'll show more genuine vulnerability in your relationships. I was talking with someone about this just yesterday, uh, another male, and this is a stereotype, but often it's true, sometimes men particularly really struggle to actually have real open relationships with one another. Uh, My friend was saying to me, it's just, you know, I don't want people to see what's really going on. I don't really want them to, to say stuff about how they think I should change and you know, all that kind of thing. That's how it is if you don't really believe no condemnation. You'll always fear the condemnation that you might receive from others if you really let them see you. You'll never have the courage to really let yourself be known. But if you can look at your own life and your own heart with all its ugliness and say no condemnation then you'll be able to open up to others. You'll be able to hear them, especially your sisters and brothers, speak words of wisdom and grace to your own heart and to grow together with them in holiness and in joy. I wonder what it might be for you. If you really believe this, what would change? No condemnation means new life. That's what this passage is telling us. It means real life. It means the life of the Spirit. It means the life that you get when the life-giving presence of God himself dwells in your heart, displacing sin, becoming the new ruling power and energizing force in your life. This is the beating heart of the Christian life. This is the spiritual power of the gospel right here. There is no condemnation for you because Jesus has experienced condemnation in your place. And you know the thing is that Jesus knows all that stuff. He knows all that stuff that you're worried you might be condemned for. He knows exactly what your heart's like. He knows what your life is like. He knows what a mess you are sometimes. And he went to the cross for you anyway. He was willing to bear your condemnation out of love and out of obedience to his father. And so sin having been condemned, where there was life, uh, where there was death, now there is life. Where there was condemnation, now there is freedom. Uh, And so as you come tonight to the Lord's table, uh, as you kneel at the rail here in humble awe of all that God has done for us in his Son, in our Lord, what you need to do is to bring with you in your hands everything that you think might condemn you, to hand it over to the Lord Jesus and to receive in those same hands, guilty though they might be, to receive in those hands the symbols of our Lord's body and blood given for you as a sign and as a pledge that nothing you've ever done and nothing you ever can do can change what he has done for you. Whatever your sins, whatever your failures, whatever your struggles, whatever burdens you are bearing, the Lord Jesus says to you, give them to me. I've paid the debt once 
and for all. There's nothing you've done, nothing you can do that can change what I've done for you. You're mine and I'm yours and there is no condemnation for you. Amen.